This is Let's See What Happens, a free-form discussion to talk about anything and everything. If you don't want to be offended, don't listen. If you do want to be offended, there's a good chance you will be. Today I sat down with John Bueller, Modesto PD for 33 years, long law enforcement career. He was in traffic, he was in SWAT, he was a detective. We talked about all sorts of things today. Didn't cover nearly half of his career probably even less. We did get a little sidetracked a couple times, but we did cover some funny stories as well as some interesting stuff that John dealt with during his career. We are going to obviously have to do more than just this recording and a few more will probably cover the rest of his career, hopefully. So if it sounds like it gets cut short, it's because it did. There was a recording error, but we've already discussed setting up our next podcast. So don't worry. I hope you like this one. Let's see what happens. How you doing, John? Pretty good. How are you? Oh, I'm good. I'm good. Uh, So I got with John because uh, I work with his son, Mike, and uh, we were on SWAT together and I Got to briefly work with John when he was at Sarasota County for a little while, but uh, he has a very long, long career in law enforcement, so I thought he would definitely have some good stories for us to talk about and go over. Um, let's start at the beginning. Where'd you, where'd you grow up, John? Grew up in Minneapolis, and a uh, great place to grow up. Uh, Not so much now. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I don't think Minneapolis PD would be the best place to be right now, unfortunately, but... Uh, I had a grandfather that was a Minneapolis cop for 30-some years. Uh, two uncles were cops there. One of them was a detective. I had another cousin that was a Minneapolis cop. He did, I think, 25 years. And then I got a couple other cousins that were cops, uh, one that was out in Edina, a suburb of Minneapolis, another one that worked in Egan, which was a suburb of St. Paul. And then I've got a cousin who's a captain down at Owatonna Police Department right now. So we, we had quite a few cops in the family, although it was a big family, so it's not like it was only cops. <laughs> right. But still a lot of a lot of history in the law enforcement, huh? That's cool. Um, so what took you? So you grew up in Minneapolis, and and then what uh, what got you? Because I believe where'd you end up going? California, correct? Yeah, I ended up being a cop in, in Modesto, California, and it was really. Um, I mean, I guess you could you know kind of call it the white privilege thing. I went down to <laughs> Minneapolis PD in in 1977 when I was 21, and I asked for an application from the recruiting guy down there. And he, we talked a bit, and then he figured out who my cousin was, and he said, he was pretty straight with me. He said pretty much, you know, we're really hiring minorities. It's it's all about oh, okay. flavor at this time. <laughs> he said, if you're a, a, a you know a white guy like you, he says, you know, you might get hired. He said, but it's it's really going to be difficult unless you are in the top ninety nine point nine percent of the testing process. Oh my gosh. And, you know, and, and it is what it is. I mean, you know, yeah. it's no big deal. You just, you know, you, you take those things. You don't complain about them. You just go, well, okay, I'll try something different. Right. And I had an uncle that lived in California. Long story short, he sent me an application. I, I actually wanted to work in San Francisco, but you couldn't apply in San Francisco at the time unless you were a city resident. Oh, And, of okay. course, I don't think there's any city residents in San Francisco that are cops That are going to be cops. Yeah, I was just going to say that. I don't think <laughs> they that fits, afford it. I don't think they fit the criteria yeah, exactly. most of the time. Yeah, but it, yeah, they wouldn't take applications from people that were outside the city. So anyway, he, my uncle lived in Modesto. Uh, it was a town at the time. It was about a hundred and yeah, about 89,000 people, I think, at the time in 1977 when I applied. 
and it's like halfway between Yosemite and San Francisco. Um, San Francisco's a 90-minute drive, you know, so you could go get good seafood and everything like that. So I, as a gag, I mean, I really wasn't even serious about it. I filled out the application and I mailed it on the due date. Um, but of course, it was postmarked that date. And then oddly enough, I, a few weeks later, I get a letter and they say, you know, hey, come on out here and take the written test. Well, I'm selling cars. Yeah. And so it's like, that, that's a no brainer. Of course, I'm going to go out there. So, you know, I, I book a flight, I fly out there, I take the written test. And I had tested at other agencies around Minneapolis. Now, uh, had you already done an academy at this point? No. Or, no okay. So you no were academy, just straight? Nothing. Yeah. Just, okay. you know, I was, I was in the middle, well, or at the, at the tail end of my associate's degree. Mm. And um, anyway, so I, you know, I apply and, and go out there. I take the test and I pass it, which I had done before at a couple other agencies, but, you know, never got past the oral in the other agencies. And so then I went back out a few weeks later when they said come back out for the um, for the oral, and I was twenty. Um, let's see, I was twenty one at the time, and took the oral. Didn't really think much about it. Yeah. Gave them the answers that I thought. You should also stress to anyone that's listening that's not law enforcement. Oral is called an oral board where you talk to. They ask you questions and they grade you on how well you do. Because uh, I don't want anyone getting the idea that John was doing. Terrible things out there to get a job. That's yeah. not what he meant yeah, at no, all. That's but, not what we uh, do. <laughs> but yeah, no, no, uh, no. as he, most he, people he, listening to this are law enforcement, I'm sure they yeah. knew what you meant. But just I wanted mean, to clarify. Yeah, even though I wanted to work in San Francisco, <laughs> I wasn't from yeah. San Francisco. <laughs> so yeah, it, you know, it's an oral board, and, and there was a, 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 a captain from the sheriff's office, a captain from Modesto PD, and there was supposed to be a third captain from Modesto PD who had a dentist appointment that day. He couldn't make it. I met him in the lobby on the way in, mm. and a uh, real good guy. It turned out to be kind of a mentor later on, but. Took the oral, you know, flew back to Minneapolis, you know, back selling cars. And then the, I think it was December 77, they sent me another letter. It said, you know, come on out for the physical agility. And it's like, okay, cool. Well, then, of course, I lost my car sales job at that time because I was, this was the third Saturday I was taking off work and they wouldn't permit right. that. And, and they were real decent about it. I remember the manager, a guy named Mike, um, you know, he said, look, you got to make a choice. You sell cars for me or you, you know, pursue your dream. And I said, well, it's not a dream. It's a goal. I said, the right. dream is kind of, you know, I mean, I guess a dream would be like being with J-Lo or something <laughs> like that, you know, minus the drama and the diva. But um, anyway, so I said, well, hey, you know, thanks for the memories and I'll see you later. And then I left. So I went out there, took the physical agility, passed that. Then in January of 78, I get this letter. It said, hey, you, you, you passed everything. You're on the hiring list. But at the time, they, the California state government was doing a Proposition 13 thing, which was a freeze on property taxes. So if you bought a house out there, your property tax would be rated at the selling price of the house at the time you bought it. And for the life of the time that you owned that house, your property tax couldn't raise up and they couldn't tax you out of your home. It was a spectacularly good deal. Right. Um, and at the time, California was run, I thought, you know, in my opinion, fairly well. And it, this is a protection for seniors and everything like that. And you've all heard about states where they, you know, will tax people out of their mm -hmm. house and keep raising the property taxes until they can't afford it anymore. So anyway, um, I'm on the list and eight months go by and I get notification that they have a position for me. And so I, the guy called me on the phone. He said he'd been trying to get a hold of me for a while. And it was, he says, we got a position. We want you out here in either two weeks or four weeks. And I said, well, I'd say two weeks. I got to give him a notice at work. At the time, I was a night manager at a grocery store. 
said, I'll be up there in four weeks. And that was pretty much it. There was no paperwork that they sent me to wow. sign, nothing. It was just a phone call and come on out here. And I knew where the place was. Right. And so I, you know, did a two-week notice at work, you know, closed out all my things that were going on in Minneapolis, you know, said uh, goodbye to all my friends and, you know, got the hell out of there and uh, drove my pickup with my dad all the way out there. And walked into the police department on a Monday. They gave me a list of where to go get my uniforms and they told me to get my hair cut uh, <laughs> because it was kind of long. And then uh, Tuesday I walked in there with a fresh haircut and uh, with my uniform over my shoulder and uh, they took me in. I signed some paperwork. They issued me all my equipment. I put my uniform on. I went up to the chief's office. He swore me in, gave me my badge. And then they were kind of like, well, what are we gonna do with this guy for the rest of the day? So they stick me out in a police car in uniform, armed with a training officer. <laughs> Hadn't been to the range. They didn't know if I even knew the muzzle from the butt, you know, a hammer from an ejector rod. And uh, out in the street we went. I rode the rest of the day with him, and um, that was kind of it. So I was, next after that, the, I was assigned for, I think, three weeks with another training officer before the academy start date was. Oh, wow. So okay. I, I was working the street with these guys. And it was like a week later, they said, hey, have you shot that gun yet? Uh, well, no. <laughs> So downstairs we go. We had an indoor range. It was pretty cool. And so, you know, shot the Model 14 6-inch 38 and hit the target, apparently. And uh, that was kind of it. Went to the academy. At the time, it was 13 weeks long. And um, that was it. Oh, wow. So that, that was in 78 or 76? Yeah, that was in uh, August of 78. Okay. All right. So... You started just patrol, just on patrol, doing your thing. Then when you did the academy, how long was the academy? The academy was 13 weeks. Uh, okay. came out, I think I was with, I, gosh, it's hard to remember how long I was with a training officer. It was probably, gosh, probably another eight weeks, maybe, I don't know, maybe 10. I, I, it's so long ago, I can't right. really remember. But then that's it. They give you the, you know, the keys to the car and you're on your own. And it's not like down here. It's, it's a different atmosphere out in California law enforcement. Um, there is a camaraderie and a addiction to your fellow officers that we really don't have down here as much. You guys have a you have a very good taste of it on SWAT because of the close working relationship that you guys have. But one of the things that I found out in the 15 months that I worked down here, there isn't that same camaraderie. You right. sign onto the car in your driveway, you drive to your zone, you start working the zone, you meet up once in a while yeah. with your buddies at you know in a parking lot or something like that. But for us, it was different. Most of us would never even dream of wearing a uniform home. And of mm. course, we didn't have take-home cars. They had, there was a parking lot with black and whites, right. you know, a whole crap load of them. And you'd, you know, try and, try and find one that was decent. Of course, the decent cars were always taken by the senior guys. So right. what I would look for is I would look for the biggest piece of crap, black and white, that was out there in the back lot. And I would start using that. I'd get a, one of those canisters with the wipes in it, the alcohol yeah. wipes. I'd start cleaning up the mic on the, on the, for the radio, clean up the radio, the steering wheel, clean the interior. I was detailed the heck out of the inside yeah. so I wasn't working in a toilet, you know, yeah. at a rest stop, you know, on yeah. Highway 99. Yeah. And after I'd get the car detailed out, I'd refill the trunk and get it looking good. And then sooner or later, within a few weeks, sooner or later, some other cop would find out about the car I'm using hey, this is great. Yeah. You know, I look like crap on the outside, right. but the inside was detailed out. And then, of course, they'd come in and trash it. They'd you know, <laughs> cups from AM, PM underneath the seat. And right. And I'd have to look for another piece of crap to, you know, <laughs> Clean rejuvenate. That bad yeah. Up. So, yeah. But yeah, you, you, you know, you'd go down there, you'd, you'd go to the office, um, you know, you'd go downstairs to the locker room, 
and you know everybody would you know we just called it getting naked yeah. uh, although we weren't and we'd go <laughs> down there into the locker room everybody you know you put on your vest and your you know your uniform and you know your backup gun and you know do a couple of quick draws into the not quick draws, but a couple I'm, of quick yeah. holster retain, you know, and back and yeah. forth, you know, into the locker, you know, finger off the trigger. And then, you know, you'd go up to briefing. And briefing was held in a meeting room. It was a briefing room. And there'd be usually two sergeants and a lieutenant because it was two sergeants per shift. And there would be, gosh, I'm thinking there must have been 18 cops in there. Right. Probably 18, a couple of civilians, a couple of CSOs. And then they would, uh, you know, they'd give you your beat where you were going to work. It was different. They didn't call it a zone out in California. They called it a beat. Yeah. And that was pretty much it. You went out there for your eight hours. And we worked six days on, eight-hour shifts, three days off. Right. And I thought, this is cool. Three days in a row off. Yeah. Nice. Days off rotated. You know, you'd get a weekend once in a while. And I did that for, you know, two years, a little over two years. And then they had an opening on, on, on traffic for a motor assignment. Yeah. And I put in for it, not thinking I would get it. And for some reason, they gave it to me. I couldn't believe it. Nice. And it was probably the most physically enjoyable occupation to me that you could have, other than maybe flying F-14s in bad weather off a carrier. <laughs> it was, you know, you had to be somewhat, I mean, not all the guys were, but if you, if, you were, if you were a decent rider, you had to be a little bit athletic, a little bit flexible and everything yeah. like that. And, and in California, they would train us for one week. It was, it was a one-week in-house motor school where they would teach us how to ride. Most of it was very slow drills. And the theory being that if you can control a motorcycle at slow speed, fast speed's not going to be a problem. Right. Just gyroscopic, you know, design of the wheels wants to keep you up anyway. So we did a week in-house, and then they sent us to San Mateo. Uh, it was a regional uh, motor school. It was right below San Francisco Airport, the fairgrounds there in San Mateo. And, and um, gosh, they, they would challenge you with things that you would say to yourself, there's no way you can do that on a motorcycle. Right. And, and you could. You know, you just keep doing it, doing it, and finally you do it. And I remember it was two weeks up there. Of, it was an 82-hour course, 80 hours of riding, two hours of paperwork. Oh, my gosh. And so it was just a good time. And, of course, it's in the Bay Area, so the weather's perfect. You right. weren't hot. You weren't cold. Uh, we had a, a road ride on the last day. This is probably getting old for the viewers. They probably don't even want to hear no, this. No, no, keep going. Go anyway, they, listen, they don't have to listen. Yeah, they can turn it off. It don't hurt. It doesn't bother they're, they're running to Rogan right yeah, now. They're, 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 they're like, oh, So, yeah, anyway, we were, uh, they had a road ride on our last, I think it was our Friday, our last day there. And it went over on, I think it was Highway 92. It went over Alice's Restaurant, um, which was kind of a, kind of eccentric, kind of a, dope smoking joint on 92 on the coastal range on the way over to Half Moon Bay to, to the Pacific Ocean. Yeah. And so we, you know, there's, gosh, I don't know, there must have been 20 of us in the school. And so here's 20 police motorcycles riding in a pack. It was Hell's right. Angels without the patch. Right. And so we get up there and we go through Alice's restaurant, a couple of Ferraris there and everything and all the normal clientele. And then we dump over into on the Pacific Coast Highway and then we run it up to towards San Francisco and come back below the Golden Gate. And it was just... I'm thinking to myself, they're paying me for this stuff. Right. I mean, do they really know what they're doing here? Is it what, you know, for a motorcycle guy, which I was, I was, I ate, drank, and and breathed motorcycles. Um, this was just like pure nirvana. Right. And then this is back when they had I what I thought were the cool uniforms. They had the um, the they were actually English riding boots. They were made by Daner. It's D E H N E R. It's not Danner like the tactical boots. But yeah. They had those, and then they had riding pants, which 
were extremely comfortable uh, for riding. They weren't too comfortable walking in, but for riding, they were really comfortable. And, and they gave us these cool black leather jackets that had... If you ever watch Magnum Force, yeah. and you see the way the, the motorcycle cops were dressed in that, uh, there was one, one of the scenes where he got off the Moto Guzzi, I think is what they were riding in, those, in that movie. But um, he had the wrong boots on. But for the most part, the jacket with the, your Sam Brown would attach to the jacket. Um, and the helmets and all that stuff was pretty much down the line as far as the way we dressed. And it was comfortable. And so I did that, the motor assignment, for six and a half years. They had a three-year cap, uh, so you had to come off after three years. And the guy that I trained to take my spot, he got busted up. And so then they called me and they said, hey, you know, do you want to go back to the bike? And I, you know, I mean, that's like asking a pedophile if he wants to go to a daycare. Right. So I went, yeah, you know, I still had my gear. So I went back for another three and a half years. Nice. And then they, they, they plugged me into working fatals uh, because they apparently liked my diagrams. And so I, I did over 40 fatals um, investigating those. That was a pretty good time. Very interesting. Technical, probably one of the only uh, patrol assignments where you actually get investigative experience. Mm. And so I did that, um, and it was just a good time. I mean, we froze in the wintertime because Northern California gets kind of cold. Yeah. Um, and we baked So you summer. were just, when you were motors, you were just motors. Like our motor guys, they also have vehicles that they can go to when the weather is yeah, guys not with, optimal. Guys with lace on their panties do that. Yeah, yeah, I get that. But no, we were pure motor guys. I mean, it would have to be a pretty big rainstorm for us to take a car out. Right. Um, because I mean, they just they they had enough cars, but they they wouldn't have enough cars for all the motor right. cars too. Yeah. I mean, they just didn't. So, so you sucked it up. Yeah, you, you dealt with the rain, yeah. but I mean, it's it, it didn't rain a lot out there. I mean, you get a little bit in the winter time. Right. It's, it's you know it, it was what it was. But yeah, you you know and and you did take the bike home, and that was the only assignment that I ever came home in uniform. Oh, nice. And I didn't really like it because then my neighbors knew what I did, and then you know and you and you had to clean the bike, you know. Right. So you know it's not like you went over to the BMW dealership over there and. Clark Road and got the sprayer out and sprayed it down. I mean, you got to clean that thing in your driveway. Yeah. So that was, uh, I didn't like that because the neighbors then knew who I was. Uh, but because um, he generally in California, it was interesting. It's a little bit different down here in Florida. Uh, you weren't real well liked as a cop out there. Yeah. I mean, some people did, of course, but yeah. not everybody. Yeah. Well, you're dealing with a different type of clientele out there, too, for the most part, it seems like. Yeah. What about, uh, so when did you get into SWAT? Well, it, the motor assignment ended in, um, in February of 89. My son, uh, who works with you guys, he was born in, in August of 88. And, and so I decided that I was pretty much done with the motorcycle. Um, as much as I loved it, I didn't want to be in a wheelchair playing catch with my son. So right. I, that kind of ended there. So um, I, I put in for SWAT, and then they also had a detective test coming up about the same time. And so I tested for detective. I thought this would be a better thing to do, but mm -hmm. more reliable hours and everything for, you know, a guy with yeah. family. Yeah, so. <laughs> Real reliable. You're going to be working even more often than you normally would. <laughs> the phone would. rings all right. the time in the middle of the night. <laughs> but yeah, I did, I applied and I, I got the detective slot in December of 89. And then I think it was, gosh, it was right, it was right around the same time. Maybe slightly before that. I might have went to SWAT slightly before that. It's on the plaque in the hall. I didn't okay. have to look at it. But it was in and around the same time. And SWAT was a collateral assignment, of course. Um, 
Modesto was growing at the time. Uh, when I left in 2010, it was 210,000 people, and we were 275 sworn versus when I started, we were 140 sworn and 89,000 people. So oh, wow. the city did grow quite a bit with the accompanying violence, which made it great for a cop. Yeah. But, um, yeah, rolled into SWAT around that time, late 80s, um, late 80s. A friend and I, we weren't really uh, very convinced that our gun training, our firearms training was very good because they had a training manager that would rotate every year. It would be somebody who wanted to advance to sergeant, so we would put in for that assignment because the training office at the time was next to the chief's office. You get a lot of exposure. Uh. So we would get guys, good guys, but they weren't gun guys. Mm. And they would roll in there and then they would all have their own ideas on how to run the firearms training program. And they did, did their best, and I, and I can't fault them. It's just because they weren't gun guys, it wasn't as good as it could be. So right. a friend and I, we, we'd read about Jeff Cooper for years, and we thought, you know, we need to get some better training or we're going to get busted up. So we, um, in 88, we went down to Gunsight. Um, Jeff Cooper was running Gunsight at the time, and we went down there for his 250. Uh, the, uh, I think it was called API 250. It was a beginning handgun class down there. Oh, okay. and, and they named it 250 because originally... The Gunsight classes were an extension from, uh, I think it was Phoenix University. Okay. And so it had a college name on it. And so we went down there, and uh, in five and a half days, they immersed you in common sense, logical, effective firearms training, of which we had never even dreamed of. Mm. They had ways to run the gun that they had to answer to every question that you asked. And right. a lot of times it was like... On a what kind of gun is this now? I was running 1911. Okay. Um, I mean, that's... To me, that's the gun. If you're going to go to a violent situation, I get the Glocks. I mean, I got a Glock. Yeah. Um, you know, they're reliable and they're solid. Yeah, I get they work and everything like that. But the 1911 to me is to, to me is the best fighting handgun there is. I mean, I just... As long yeah. as it's tuned, as long as it works. Right. I mean, you know, out of the box one, maybe not so much. But anyway, we were running 1911s down there, and they were telling us about positioning the thumb on top of the safety, you know, as a right-handed shooter, and then using your left thumb to hold it down. Um, things that didn't make sense to me ever before. Um, and they would explain why they wanted you to do all these things. Said, John, you know, you're taking this class. You paid for this class. Do what we tell you at least until noon, and if it doesn't work, go back to what you're doing. Mm. And usually by about 11.15, it's like, gosh, this feels pretty good. Mm. And it was like that the whole week. And the thing is... For, for those that are aware of Jeff Cooper, he had a, a presence that was, it was really interesting. The, I think it was the first day when we were there, we were in the classroom, and he comes riding up on a little three-wheel ATC Honda, and he gets off. We can see him out the window, and uh, he comes in. We'd been reading about him for, you know, years in right. magazines and everything, and he comes in, and he takes his hat off, and he puts the hat down upside down on the table, and then he walks up to the podium, and he just starts talking. And I look at my, my friend Vince... Um, and he looked at me, and we, we both agreed that that was worth the price of the class right there, just to have him walk in the room. But he was a no-nonsense guy. He, um, he, he was a slave to excellence in all forms. He appreciated that. Um, he, he appreciated humor, but he didn't dispense much humor. He was right. a pretty no-nonsense guy. And he created an atmosphere there where you, you, know, you were in respect of him and awe because of the things that he had done. And it was just a good time. And that, that, I think, is one of the things that helped me get on SWAT is because I had that training funded out of my own pocket. And they thought, well, maybe, maybe John's serious about this. And then, of course, like anything else, SWAT was a selection based on the name being circulated amongst the team members. Right. And at the time, there was one guy that was on SWAT that, for whatever reason, he didn't want me on there. Well, when he left the team, I'd, I'd applied like two or three other times. 
and gotten denied. And so the, finally I just thought, well, this isn't in the wheelhouse for me and I'll just give up on this. But then somebody, one of the SWAT guys reached out to me and says, now's a, probably a pretty good time for you to apply. Again. Oh, nice. So I did and then I got picked up and then that was that. So did you guys have a tryout process or was it just kind of applying, like putting your name in to do it? I don't remember us having a tryout at the time. Yeah. Um, I know they do now. Um, you know, kind of like you guys do. But at the yeah. time, I don't recall that we had anything like that. It was based more on, on work product and right. personality and, uh, you know, what everybody knows about you. And we weren't that big. Right. You know, I mean, we had, at the time, well, let's see, probably about then, I, we were probably had about 175 cops. Everybody knew each other. Right. Um, there were, you know, there was admin guys, there were detectives, and then there were, you know, cops. Right. And so everybody pretty much knew each other. So that's kind of how that worked. And, and it, was, it was a great collateral assignment. You know, same thing as you guys. Yeah. Um, full-time assignment probably would have been better. Oh, yeah. It's Absolutely. just we didn't, have, we didn't have the need for it. Same here. So yeah. it's just oh, one yeah. of those things. Yeah. Just didn't I, uh, it's funny. I just had a conversation the other day with a, uh, a sergeant that... Uh, just discussing different aspects of like the promotional process basically here and how it works and the way it kind of just give everyone a quick brief the way it kind of works is basically you take a test that they have they've gotten it from somewhere like and it's a you know a standardized test that you take and however you score on that you get that score and then they add in points for different things like uh, a a bachelor's degree, master's degree, doctrine. You get a point for each one of those things. And then also you get a point for each five-year stint that you've been with the agency. Oh, okay. Excellent. What I thought, so I'm talking, and I was like, because one of my buddies that just took the test, I was like, really? Like, I go, that I, I understand, like, you want people to be educated and stuff, but, like, what about some of these guys that have been here 15, 20 years, they get, yeah, they'll get four points, but if they don't have a bachelor's degree... Or that, like they're like potentially someone that has a doctorate, which I'm not saying that they didn't earn that and work hard to get that and they shouldn't get something for that. But I'm just saying it's kind of weird if someone has a doctorate, they're getting three points and they could have only been here two years or the minimum to be a sergeant. You know what I mean? And they could have taken that test and done really well on the test, but they have no experience really being a cop. And like, I feel like that's a little weird. And then also, so like once they take the test, they, you take the test, you score, then you go do an oral board again right. and they score you and that can, that can raise you up. It can drop you down right. like, cause yeah. it's a cumulative grade. And basically then you score out on that and then you have a sheriff's interview where the sheriff talks to you and nobody really, for the most part, nobody really moves too much. Once you've made it through the oral board, you're pretty much where you're at on the list. Right. That's, that's right. pretty, unless you really go in there and talk to the sheriff and say something really dumb. <laughs> like, I mean, you gotta, you gotta say something pretty dumb, I think to screw up there. Uh, but that being said, I was saying the other day to someone, I said, why, why is there no like basis on like what you were just talking about? Like how you know the person, like, shouldn't there be some sort of scoring to where, I don't know, bring in the pe the person's zone partners and be like, Hey, does this like, and it doesn't have to be like just me and you having a conversation. It can like, you can have a score sheet, like, Hey, how reliable are they for backing you up on calls? Right. Scoring one through five. And like, they give it to and people are like, yeah, but. And the person I was talking to, like, well, I'm kind of an asshole. And I go, I'm an asshole too, but people can count on me. Like, I don't think being an asshole has anything to do with, you know, reliability, present, keeping, like, being accountable for your zone, making sure that you're backing up your zone partners, doing your job correctly. Like, all of these things, those things have nothing to do with being an asshole. You can be an asshole and still be a very good cop. 
you know. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I couldn't agree more with that. I mean, I, I have my bachelor's degree. Uh, I'm $14,000 uh, poor, but I don't really believe that I'm one bit smarter. Right. Uh, it's, you know, it's an exercise where you have to have that nowadays to be competitive. But as far as it having any benefit, give me somebody with 30 years on the job who knows what the heck he's doing mm-hmm. versus somebody who's got, you know, a four-year degree or a master's. We had a guy at the agency, he, he had a master's. And he made a big deal about it. He, you know, he would sign every one of his memos, you know, Lieutenant so-and-so M.A. Oh, my And God. so then some of the guys were signing their memos, you know, officer, you know, so-and-so GED, you know, just <laughs> as a prank. Because he took this, this, this master so serious, like it was a big deal. And yeah. I'm thinking to myself, you know... He, at one time, he was a real decent guy, but it, the masters went to his head so much mm. that he became just a flaming jerk. Um, he he had a meeting. He was a, he was a, the president of our uh, supervisors association, a management mm. association. There was lieutenants and the captains and the sergeants, and we were all in this union. And then, of course, the the detectives and the officers were in another union. And one time this, this lieutenant with the masters was over having a private meeting at city hall with one of the council members, strictly forbidden. You can't do mm. that uh, because you, he was doing that. like yeah. negotiations for things yeah. behind our back. Well, I found out about it. And of course I was at the tail end of my career and, and I guess even if I wasn't, I probably would have done the same thing, but <laughs> I didn't really give a crap. And so I made a, I made a ruckus about it. Yeah. And the next thing you know, we're in a sergeant's meeting and it's, it's the topic of conversation because I, apparently, I stirred up enough ruckus where other guys were with me on it. So we did a recall on this guy to get him booted out as a president because I thought it was crap. Well, yeah, that's, I mean... That's Ethically improper. Up. Yeah. So anyway, uh, there was, I remember there was one sergeant in there I didn't care for too much because this sergeant almost shot my foot one time when I was <laughs> telling the sergeant to decock a SIG 228 at the range. The sergeant had, at the time was an officer who had carried it for six months but couldn't remember the decocking lever, which, of course, tells you that regardless of the right. masters, they weren't any good. But anyway, so I, I remember that sergeant said something, well, I really want to know who it is that, that spearheaded this whole thing. And I'm, I'm sitting like seven feet away from this sergeant. And I said, well, if you really want to know the mystery to that, it's me. Yeah. And then I, you know, I get some crap back and I'm thinking, and I almost, anyway, I was going to say some things, but there, there are <laughs> limits to what my, what comes out of my mouth at times. <laughs> but it, it, it was one of these situations. You got a guy who's overly educated, but under, underqualified. Yeah. And it, it just, he had a complete lack of personal skills. It was interesting. He, he had been the supervisor of the traffic unit for a number of years. And I, I remember on my retirement, they, they, there was a theater room at the police department that it was, had, you know, it was, it was like a theater. I mean, it was an incline where it went down and yeah. seats. I, I don't know how many it sat, but it, it sat a ton of people. Gosh, I don't know, maybe, maybe 150. I don't know. It, you could, you could pack a ton of people in there, I would think. And they were, there were a bunch of us that retired at the same time. And I, they were talking about this lieutenant's career and everything. And I saw there were a couple of traffic guys in the back of the room, you know, motor guys. And I didn't think anything of it. And he, they, get, they talk about his career. And then he talks for a minute. And he sits down. And they went through a couple other sergeants. And they get to me. They talk about my career. And then I'm getting ready to sit down. And then there's the two motor guys in the back. They go, yeah, we want to interrupt. Uh, uh, we just want to, you know, bring something down here for JB. And they, um, they brought me a motor helmet that was signed by all the motor guys. Oh, wow. Nice. And I hadn't ridden motors since 1989. Yeah. But the last four years when I was a sergeant, I tried to make sure that those guys that were working uh, PM shift, the motor guys on PM, they had everything they need. You know, because they had, they had no direct supervision. I was a functional supervisor of right. them, but not even assigned to it. But I was one of the on-duty guys. And so I guess the fact that I 
went out of my way, which wasn't really that very far, although I would have gone quite far, yeah. to help them paid off. And so it was kind of a, it was an unintentional jab at this guy who had really trashed so many people over right. the years. He was their supervisor. <laughs> they yeah. walked right yeah. by him and they gave me this help. It's not actually, it's out in the other room there. I can show it to you. It's kind of cool. Yeah. But um, yeah, it's, I, the education, I get it. It's important. But a lot of it is theory. And then, of course, a lot of the classes, I remember I had to take an environmental science class. And although it was good, I, I learned a bit on it and it was enjoyable. It didn't help me do my job as a police supervisor right. one bit. No. Nothing. I, so I went to um, school for a business management because I figured that was about as broad as you could be. Transferable. And it could go to anything. Because yeah, exactly. I was like, I, you know, when I got out of high school, I wasn't really, so I wanted to do the military, but my wonderful wife, uh, not at the time, but uh, was already had her hooks in. So I was kind of, she talked me out of it more or less. Girls uh, can do that. Yeah, yes. it's weird how that works, you know. Yeah, they yeah. take off their clothes, I get confused. I don't no, know. but uh, I get confused when they're wearing their clothes, <laughs> you know. But yeah, uh, anyway, so I originally was going to try to do the Army, tested all that stuff. Well, they found out my, I wore contacts. And, uh, you can't fly for us. I'm like, oh, well, can I get surgery? Like, no, can't fly for us. Don't worry, we'll find something. Because I had scored very well on that. Oh, we can find something else for you. I go, no, I can do something else out in the real world. I'm good. I'll, you know. So that wasn't really her that stopped that. That was kind of them screwing it up. But then I was, she, God bless her mom too. Um, she was very big proponent of like, go to college, do college. And I was like, I don't know. I don't, I'm good. Like, I don't really want to. Like, I have no... I don't know what I want to do, but I don't necessarily want to do that. And she's like, well, then that's why you should just go do that. And I'll help you. She helped me do fill out scholarships and all this stuff. And bright, I had like 75% bright futures paid and all this stuff. And nice. so, yeah. yeah, so, um, she helped me with that. So the nice thing was, is the community college we went to, if you go to community college, bright futures covers a hundred percent of your, of your community college. Oh, so, very good. Yeah. so I ended up getting my associates and then we were going to go to USF in Tampa. We went up there and, that did not last long for me because I was already halfway checked out for schooling anyways because I was like, this is dumb. Like I was with you. I had, I had just finished my associates. I had started business, like going for my business. I had never changed my degree, nothing. I had yet to take a business class. I'd already done two years. I had yet to take it. The only thing that was slightly applicable, accounting, which again, I get it. You need to know how to do your books, but I wasn't going to be an accountant. Like I was, you know what I mean? Like most people I know that own their own business, they pay someone to do their book. So like, (laughs) even that was kind of like, eh, I don't really get this. And then uh, we got to USF and my wife was going for education. She was, she became a teacher, but uh, I was there and I started training jujitsu and MMA and kind of got into that. And I just kind of was like, yeah, I'm just going to do this. And kind of, so I probably had, when I originally dropped out, I had probably, unfortunately, maybe two semesters left and I would have finished yeah. my bachelor's. And it was one of those things now that I kind of like kicked myself for, but I was so done with it. And I mean, I was that far in and I think I had one class that I could say was like relevant to my degree. And like, why am I tr- taking trigonometry? Like, how does that, how is that relevant? How does that make sense towards anything? Like, I not one class had I taken about hey, this is how you manage people. Like, this is how you be a leader to people. This is how you talk to someone that you're in charge of. Like, none of that. None of that was covered. And I was just kind of like, what am I doing? Like, what is this? Like, I don't, like, what is this? It was just nonsense. It seemed like utter, and again, I'm not 
trying to talk down to anybody that has done a lot of education. Hey, that takes like wherewithal and forthright. Like you have to have some fortitude to push through and get that done for sure. I'm just saying an application to like what you were just saying, this guy that was clearly well-educated wasn't a very good leader to he, his men. Yeah, you he know? just wasn't. Yeah, and that was, and that's the thing that you know you find. I mean, it, it's it would be nice if uh, college education was geared more the way that uh, trade education is. Right. When you go to a trade school and you learn welding or machining it's or something like that, applicable. they're not talking about basket weaving or like Ben Shapiro says, uh, lesbian <laughs> dance theory. You know, that's not really part of the curriculum. And right. and I, I mean the, the the math stuff. I you know I was a I, I was really right in the same boat with you on on any of the math things. I didn't think that that would have any application to law enforcement. All although it did. The one place where I found that it, uh, was when crashes, it came to, right? uh, ge geometry and mm -hmm. algebra was like Pythagorean theorem and things like that for right. figuring out distances at a crime scene when you're doing me measurements at a crime yes. scene or if you're doing trajectory reapproximation on you know flight path of bullets or something like that. Right. Then there was some of that technical stuff that came in. However, I saw a lot of that stuff was covered. They, I remember they sent me down to uh, uh, Long Beach to a two-week crime scene investigator school. And it was a CSI school uh, before CSI was on TV, before mm -hmm. it was sexy. And, right. you know, at that time, it was just a bunch of sweaty cops and, <laughs> you know, sleepy because they got called out in the middle of the night. Yeah. So I go down Who's there. Who's getting coffee? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> donuts, what the heck. So I go down there for that two-week school. I'd been working crime scene for a couple of years at that time uh, when I first got on as a detective. And... I learned a few things in the crime scene school, but it was, it, again, it was an 80-hour school, and 80 hours of it applied to what we were doing. And the stuff that I learned was great. The stuff that I already knew just reinforced that what we were doing was right. Right. And this is, to me, this was real education because I wasn't spending time wasting it. Now, that class was put on by Long, Long Beach State. Um, they would send us, we'd usually get two 40-hour classes a year back in the 80s and the 90s. They would send us to Sacramento State, San Jose State, Long Beach State, the, the state colleges, and that's yeah. where we would get our in-service training. So every one of those classes that I ever went to was an upper-level college unit. So when it came to finishing off my four-year degree, my bachelor's, all of those classes counted towards my major. And so I only had to take 11 classes to, yeah. to finish it. Actually, I had to take 12, but I challenged one, took the test, and, and got it. See, that. that's what's funny, too, is like, so when I did the academy, like the, I originally, because I was originally in corrections, I did the corrections academy. Some of those guys had never done any college. They got like, I think they won, they got something like 60 credit hours or something, yeah. which is great. I was like, cool, maybe that'll just finish out my degree. You would think. None of it was applicable because no, it was not. in something different. It, yeah. it was in law enforcement. Like it had nothing to do, or criminal justice had nothing to do with businessmen. And I'm thinking, I'm sorry, this is a scam. Like, I'm sorry, but this is a scam. <laughs> like, so I got 60 credit hours to what, start another associate's degree? Like, how does that make sense? It, it just blows my mind. Um, but uh, I, I was gonna say when you said that thing about the training hours, like the 80 hours and how that class directly applied to what you were doing. That was one of the questions I asked also as I go, how is it being on a specialty unit or doing something like, cause you know, in law enforcement, you have to take classes all the time. Right. Some of them are complete BS that you just have to, you have to take it to take it cause you got to get the certification, whatever it is. Now there's some that they seem like BS, but literally, I mean, everyone almost, I think that's been a cop long enough is you like, Yearly, we have to redo our CPR value or certification. Right. Yes, that that's relevant. That's yeah, good. I, I use it. Yes. I used it. Like, yeah. Does since I started being a cop till now, has it really changed? You don't do the breaths anymore. That's really it. Like that's that's pretty much it. But 
<clears throat> excuse me. What wait five years? You'll do the breasts again. Right. Exactly. Well, what kills me though is so I was again a bunch of my buddies that just recently took the sergeant's exam. I was asking. I go. So you don't get any credit for like you get a point for every five years you've been in the sheriff's office. That's generous. But yeah, but you don't get any sort of points for being in a specialty unit. Like which you should. I would, right. Like I would think if whatever it is. Uh, anything that's not enough, and this is in no way saying that patrol is not important. It's the most important spot. It's hands down. It's the backbone. It's the boots on the ground that get it done. But that being said, there is a certain elevated liability when you go into a specialty spot, usually because of whatever reason it's either more dangerous or there's more, there is all in all more liability to your decision-making, whatever it is. So like, SWAT, it blows my mind that like you get, so you get no other extra credit for being on the SWAT team for whatever, however many years, because I know for us anyways, the amount of extra classes and training and stuff that we go oh, through yeah. just for SWAT, it seems like, and again, I'm not saying it should count. I mean, it counts for me because I use it. Like I, it's practical and it's going to keep me and my teammates safe. I understand that, but I'm just saying like, if you're going to start giving out grades for stuff and giving out points for education, wouldn't it be more relevant to give out points for education that directly like affects your job that you're doing and you're trying to be in charge of people that are doing it? It just well, it blows yeah, my mind. Not only the education, but the experience. You take a sergeant out in the street who's had SWAT experience before uh, and you get a guy who you know forces his way into a house and he's holding somebody in there hostage. That SWAT guy, uh, who's now a sergeant, knows how to set up a perimeter. Right. He also knows who, who, who to call and try and get on a landline or somehow get a phone number so that they can start talking to this guy, mm -hmm. see if he can talk him out. He knows when to call out SWAT after right. he's got his perimeter set up with patrol guys. And if you take a guy who's got a, you know, a, a bachelor's or a master's, cool, I get it, he's probably good in the classroom, but you put that same guy without that experience out there at night, under pressure, mm -hmm. with violence all around, and try to get him to make those same decisions that a SWAT guy is gonna be able to do with little right. effort whatsoever, right. you're gonna have a different outcome. And this is a thing that is a little bit frustrating. And, and you know, at this stage in my life, you know, I mean, at my age, you know, I'm out of the game now. Uh, I can look back, you know, with fond memories on the career. It wouldn't change much because it was a blast. Yeah. But I can talk freely about it. And, and I don't have to worry about, you know, anybody giving me a hard time about it. I, I, I get the education thing. My only problem with the education is the things that they make you take for that education that don't apply to the specific thing that you're getting yes, it for. And that, exactly. to me, is a waste of time. It's a waste of money. I get the other other side of the argument. It makes you a broader person. You can see a bigger picture. Yeah, 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 yeah. All that kind of stuff. Right. I remember they sent me to a, a three-week supervisor. It was called LPO, Leadership in Police Organizations. And it actually it was taught by that one lieutenant. And, you know, <laughs> and he's a good guy. But he just, like you say, he's pretty full of himself. He's got a, he's got a doctorate now. And, um, oh, good. Now he gets to put Lieutenant PhD. <laughs> yeah. Well, he retired. He's running a consulting thing or something oh, like okay. that. But, but yeah, I mean, you know, and, and that's good for him. I'm glad. I, I know he enjoys it and he gets rewards on it, and that's great. We're there for uh, 120 hours this three week. It, it was spaced out over, I think, six months. We'd go a week, and then we'd be off, and then we'd come back for a week. And, and so at the end of that time, you got 120 hours crammed into, um, you know, this class. And the actual amount of information that you got that was useful... I bet it was 38 hours. Yeah. But it was, the thing is, is they, they, I remember there was one day at another thing, they sent me down to a two-week class down in Monterey, um, and it was a sergeant's class uh, 
two weeks to tell you how to be a sergeant. Yeah. Well, my gosh, if you need two weeks to learn that, then maybe you should have left <laughs> on Wednesday the first week. So we go down there, and, I, and then the second week, they had us broken up into small groups, and it was, it was two gals. One of them was a former female chief, and another one was her best friend who was a female um, PhD at some local college or something like that. And actually, great instructors. They really mm. were. And they put together a great program, but it was a week too long. Yeah. And we spent there, I remember one afternoon, we broke up into small groups. They could see the disgust on my face. I didn't hide it very well. <laughs> uh, they had us broke up into small groups, and we were making cardboard castles as a team-building exercise. And, I'm th- and at the time, I'm in my 50s. And I'm thinking to myself, <laughs> no, uh, yeah, yeah, 50, yeah. And, I, and I'm thinking to myself, 50 years old, I'm getting paid, you <laughs> know, my, my pay castles, and my benefits yeah. to make cardboard castles. Are you effing kidding me? This yeah. is the stupidest thing in the world. And, and I blasted them on the eval at the end yeah. of the class. I, you know, and I, I just, you know, hey, this could be reduced. And I'm, you know, I'm kind of a safe guy. I, I don't think the taxpayer should get boned. And, right. and they were making big well, money. Because we're this taxpayers. Class. Yeah, exactly. Like, that's <laughs> the thing is it's like I'm, I'm on the other side of the fence on that also. It's <laughs> like, hey, I'm paying towards myself and all these other people to sit here and make cardboard casts. Like, that's ridiculous. It was just crazy. There was, and I knew about this before that class, but there was a book that they talked about in that class. Um, it was called uh, It's Your Ship, and it is written by a guy named uh, Mike Abrashoff. And he was a former ca- uh, commander in the Navy, and they gave him a Burke-class destroyer. It was called the Benfield, and uh, B-E-N-F-O-L-D. And he, the, the, if I remember right, the ship had a, I think he'd have a two-year deployment on the ship, and there was an 80% dropout of the Navy rate from that ship. 20, oh. Only 20% of the people that were on that ship would stay in the Navy after two years. They would oh, other, they'd wow. leave. And I'm I, I, I trying to remember what the figure was on training somebody new for one of those slots, but it's like a year's salary to train somebody to refill right. the slot that's vacated. So they give this to this commander, and he had worked for, I think it was Secretary of Defense Perry, who had this quality that no matter who walked in the room, he would speak to that person like they were the most important person on earth. And Abrashoff watched this demeanor from Perry. And then when he got command of the Benfold, which is a big deal for a naval commander that wants to move up, he integrated that into his approach with everybody on the ship, hence the title of the book, It's Your Ship, because he brought everybody from the ship, from the lowliest cook to the guy working the boilers down in the, in the, you know, the steam generator yeah. or whatever the heck it was, all the way to the executive officer, and he interviewed each one of them individually and asked them, what can be done better when we run this ship. And this is not a book review, but what it did is it, it showed that this guy had, had true leadership. I remember the cooks had, and then he described it in the books, the cooks talked about how the food was such crap and it was junky because they had to get the, the ingredients and the food from the Navy stores. And he said, well, how do we fix that? And they said, well, we can get better food cheaper at Costco. So Abershoff gets a couple of pickup trucks. The cooks go down to Costco. They load them up. They come back to the ship. And now the guys are eating good. There was a, a thing Which where they... I was not in the military, but I hear that that is the best way to change anybody's look on anything. If you give them something good to eat, a you, lot of guys are going to be a lot happier. And make it fun. And, and he, he had a theory that if, it, if, if nobody gets hurt... And it is the only things that he needed to be consulted about is if it was a danger to the ship, a danger to a crew member, or it was going to cost the taxpayer money. Those are his three tipping points for doing things right. He didn't want to be bothered with it. If it had a risk of running on one of those things, he wanted to know about it because he wanted to make the final call. Right. So he allowed the individuals to make their own decisions. 
And of course, they were held accountable for him. Right. But he also wasn't a jerk where he was trying to become a captain off of somebody else's mistake, which of course we see in law enforcement. Oh, you, get, yeah. you know, I remember there was a couple of lieutenants that would, you know, use a mistake by me. Throw you under the bus. Oh, grab a yeah. wrist, grab yeah. an ankle, spin you under, uh-huh. and then back the dualies yeah. over you. Oh, yeah. You know, it's just so typical. But a true leader, and, and, and anybody who wants to be a leader, if they read Abershoff's book and they had the humility to practice what he describes in that book, to me, you would be an effective leader, mm-hmm. in my opinion. But, of course, my opinion is just one guy could be wrong. Right. But I saw good leaders. I, I remember there were sergeants that we would go to hell with, you know, right. side by side with them oh, because yeah. we respected them and we trusted them. And then there were other ones. Not so much, because we knew that they were looking for their next promotion. And that was one of the things that I saw throughout, you know, the 33 years that I did that job, is the when, when I worked in detectives, most of the detectives were pretty happy. Uh, we came to work every day. We liked being detectives. We liked our caseload. We liked what we got to do, where we got to go. And then there were uh, some sergeants that were happy being sergeants. Other than that, pretty much every patrol guy wanted to be a sergeant. Most of them didn't want to be detectives. Every lieutenant wanted to be a captain. Every captain came to work wanting to be the assistant chief. Mm. And of course, every assistant chief came to work every day wanting to be the chief. And then of course, the chief came to work every day wanting to be a chief at a bigger place. So the only people that were happy were there were a few sergeants and then a bunch of us detectives because everybody else came to work every day wanting to be something they weren't. Mm. And I understand goals and I understand dreams. I see a difference. Um, dreams. I, I have a dream of driving Formula One. Uh, it won't happen. And I get that. Um, I, you know, I have a goal that I want to eat healthy and stay healthy. Okay, that's obtainable. Yes. And so there's a difference there. And so I, you know, I can kind it's of... It's very important to be able to recognize the difference between the <laughs> Some two, for people sure. Yeah. But I think if, if, if the, the, to be able to come out of that career missing it every day, and I do, um, not every aspect of it. There were some things that were distasteful, of course. But for the most part, I enjoyed being a cop. Right. It was just the most enjoyable career that you could have. I got to see things. I got on the other side of the yellow tape. I got to do things. The, the, the stuff we do, they make TV shows about. Right. And probably well, the most accurate thing is if you watch Bosch. Uh, the, we didn't get to shoot as many people as he does. I, <laughs> but Bosch is probably the most absolutely accurate depiction of police work, at least in California, because it shows the frustration with command staff, incompetent leadership, people people in positions of leadership that are incompetent. It also shows great leaders. It shows the politics. It shows the frustration. And it shows some of the mundane that actually, to me, was always interesting. Yeah. And so... Well, that's why, did you see, you saw End of Watch? Oh, yeah, very realistic. Yeah, very realistic. That was hands down the most realistic cop Movie. Have you seen Colors? I've, no. Oh, watch Colors. Oh, really? Oh, gosh. Colors, again, California law enforcement yeah. at its finest. Yeah. Oh, no, I haven't seen You want to see Colors. Okay. It's got Sean Penn and Robert Duvall in it. It's back in the 80s. I think Dennis Hopper directed it. Um, it, it was extremely well done. And it... The gang culture in California law enforcement is one of the things that we struggled with for years because they were so violent. And they, they were difficult to reason with all the time. And the, the offset of that is they provided us with very enjoyable things to deal with. Uh, mm. we, we'd have, say we'd have 20 murders in Modesto in a year. Um, you might have 18 innocent victims. Right. Or I'm sorry, 18 or two innocent victims and 18, 18 gang members. Gang, yeah. you know, crook killer crook. Yeah. And you always felt bad for the parents because, you know, it, it seemed like every one of those gang guys, you know, violent offender that he was, 
his mom was about the sweetest gal you could ever meet. Right. And it just, you know, it would break your heart to go talk to them. And then, of course, you know, you'd want to try and catch the guy that did it. But it, it made for a very enjoyable experience in law enforcement because right. you got to do things and see things and, and work on things that were a true challenge and, you know, kept you hopping. We had a, we had a saying in the unit, Kevin Berlotto, my, uh, my best buddy out there, uh, Kevin and I, um, Kevin got shot six times in a jewelry store robbery, uh, survived. Um, and um, anyway, we worked homicide together. We worked road motors together. But we, we came to know that whenever we were working a murder, the, the best work that we ever turned in, the most efficient work, the, the, the ability for us that we couldn't do when we weren't under pressure to uh, prioritize and categorize things and do things right, always seemed to come out when there was the most pressure and we were on a time limit and we mm. had 70 things going on and we had to figure out which 20 we had to work on mm. and which ones we had to put apart. So it, it was that adrenaline challenge of doing those things that was so intoxicating to me. Plus we had supervisors that rotated into homicide. I mean, we were there the whole time. Detectives was a promoted right. position out there. <clears throat> so guys didn't come in for five years and then they didn't give you that pat on the shoulder and say, well, you're going to take those skills back out to patrol where they're going to do you some, some good. Right. And, of course, anybody who's worked detectives for a little while or even hasn't realizes that that's some sort of song and dance crap put on by some administrator that doesn't want you to get too comfortable. Right. Because when you go back out in the field, um, even me as a sergeant the last four years, I went out there and I'd come to a homicide scene and I'd be going damn, I should be working this damn thing because I know exactly what to do and exactly when to do it. And all I was doing is getting the guys to put up the yellow tape. Yeah. I want you to canvas over there. We're going to take statements from that guy, protect that piece of evidence there, uh, check for video over here, and then I'll get a hold of the detectives that are coming in and we'll stage them over here. Yeah. And it was a complete waste of 17 years of chasing murderers to put me in a patrol assignment for the last four years because they didn't like what came out of my mouth. Now, I yeah. realize that I created my own grave. I dug my <laughs> own grave with that. Um, but at the same time, as, as a waste for the taxpayer, I don't know what their clearance is now, but the whole time I was there, our clearance rate was over 90% on our oh, homicides. Wow. One of the highest in the nation. They did an article in the Modesto B about it back in the 90s about our clearance rate. Now, part of that was we lived in a, a city that wasn't like L.A., so our guys generally stayed local. But not all of them did. I got travel all over the U.S. looking for these guys that really? did that wow, stuff. Cool. Yeah, from Kodiak, Alaska to Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, from uh, Connecticut, New York uh, to Houston, uh, from uh, gosh, Deer Lodge, Montana, um, down to Vegas. I, uh, and Portland. were these all these were gang ones, or um, the, not all? Ones? Not all gang ones, but some of them were. Yeah. Yeah, the New York and the Connecticut trip was gang related. Yeah. Uh, guy supplied the gun to a shooter. The shooter goes into a park, kills a drug dealer, and then the guy who supplied the gun goes, eh, I might need to get out of here for a while. And within 48 hours, he's on a plane flying to his cousin's house up in um, Danbury, Connecticut. And so you went from, sorry, back up. Yeah. So you went from the motor thing, did you go straight to detective, or did you go back to patrol a Went back while? to patrol for eight months, okay. seven and months, got the detective, and then got the detective yeah. thing. Okay. And, then I and you was, were doing detective and SWAT at the same time, then, yeah, right? Yeah, doing that at the same okay. time. And then teaching firearms, too. That was another right. collateral. So. So, so when you became a detective, when was that? In the early 90s? Uh, December of 89. Okay, in 89. December of 89. So... I, I get, I'm not a detective, uh, but uh, I would imagine that like being a detective then had to be so much different than it is now. What with like the cell phone thing, the cell phones, the cameras everywhere. Cause like back then it was probably like, uh, Hey, this gas station has cameras. 
like it was almost like a, an, an oddity more yeah. so than a regular thing. I, I can't even imagine where you start with that because a lot of people like nowadays it's like, Oh, did he have a phone? Cool. Let's check his phone to oh, get us some like, and like, yeah. Oh, Hey, the three people over there recorded it happen. You know what I mean? Like, I just can't even imagine. I, I heard a, a comedian one time he was talking about, he was talking about true crime TV or whatever. And he goes, man, he goes, what did they used to do back when? He goes, like, can you imagine back in, like, the early 1900s? Like, they would show up to a scene. There'd be blood all over the place. <laughs> yeah. They'd be like, like, before there was DNA and fingerprints, they'd be like, hey, detective, there's a pool of the killer's blood over here. Gross. Wipe that up. Now back to my hunch. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. Like, I, I just, I can't even imagine. Like, where do you, do you, I imagine the main start has got to be, like, going and actually, like you said, canvassing the people around. Hey, did you see something? Did you hear something? Like, was that because the gang ones isn't that kind of what yeah. you have to do? And that's and, you know it was kind of I, I can't remember hardly any of the whodunits, and it seemed like I I, I was the lead on twenty six homicides. I cleared twenty six. Wow. Um, and then I worked over one hundred and forty with other detectives. I can't think of hardly. I mean, most of mine were whodunits. They they had a habit of giving them to me. I remember sometimes they would jump the rotation because we there were six of us that worked homicides. So the top guy that was catching the next case. He would get every unattended death until he got a murder. And then he would go to the bottom of the rotation and the mm. next guy would go up, everybody would move up one. And so you would get drug overdoses, you would get suicides, any death that was unattended that had to be investigated, you would get. And like, I remember there was one particular December where we had a bad batch of heroin that came into the town and I was on the bubble uh, on the top of the list. And gosh, I must've had nine heroin deaths that month, that month. You know, you, you get there and here's the needle still in the arm. Right. It's, it's like, like, I uh, wonder what I happened. I got this one solved. But the thing is, is you still had to do the same kind of work that you right. would do. Not as big of a crime scene, but the same kind of work that you would do on a homicide. And it was just beating me up because I was every night I'm getting called out. Well, quick story on, on one of them. I remember there was one, and, and really all this, it, the thing that came as a, as a benefit to most cops and most cops don't understand I shouldn't say that. A lot of young cops don't understand what experts they really are. And like, I remember I had an academy class one time because I taught at the academy for 10 years, again, as a collateral. I'd have them for two days. Mm. And um, I taught crime scene investigation, uh, interpretation, uh, homicide investigation, robbery investigation, courtroom preparation. And then I built in a field trip to the coroner's office so they could see a couple of dead bodies because they were always <laughs> curious about, yeah, are we going to throw up? You know, would we see our first dead body? No, that's all Hollywood crap. I've never yeah. seen anybody throw up at a crime scene. So it doesn't <laughs> work that way. So anyway, it's, it's all reading things. And so I'm telling these young recruits in the academy, I says, you guys, you're already experts in, in, in firearm impact. And they're looking at me like, what dope were you smoking in the parking lot in your, in your unmarked car when you yeah. came in here? And I, and I said, well, think about it for a minute. You guys have been out at the range for all these times. You've shot, what, 1,500 rounds. You've seen bullet strikes on concrete and what they do. You've seen them on wood. You've seen penetrations into wood posts. You've seen per perforations of wood itself. You've seen what it does to paper. I know you guys were shooting some scenarios. You were shooting through cloth. Mm -hmm. You know what close range is because you can see what the gun does to the cloth, the T-shirt that you put over the target when you do a retention shot, you know, from contact distance. I said, if, if you guys catalog that stuff and keep it and, and build it and work from there and think about every time that you see something on the range, 
transfer that to the street the next mm. time you go to a crime scene and take a look on the pavement. What the hell is that? Oh, that looks exactly like that skip mark I saw on the range deck when I was shooting out there. What's this hole? Oh my gosh, that looks just like the hole I saw in a backstop. So anyway, it, it, it's interpretation of things. So quick story on a quick homicide. I don't know how much time you want me to go. I, oh, I could, no, go I ahead. could go for a month. Yeah. Hey. I go out to this murder. It was, it was a Sunday afternoon. It was in the fall. You know, the leaves are turning, you know, not to the extent that they do in the Northeast, but in California, they still turn and they're blowing across the road. Sunny day, you know, it's, I don't know, it's 60 degrees or something. Dead guy, local gang member laying out in the middle of the street on a Sunday afternoon, like three in the afternoon, football season and everything like that. Everybody home watching a game. And there, there were some people that were still crowded around, but most of them had left because he was already covered up and everything like that. And I get there and I look across the street and just looking at the people while they're giving me the brief, the patrol guys are telling me what's going on. And I see this one kid, and he's early 20s, skinny, uh, black kid. Um, he's wearing this, like, bright fluorescent hat. I mean, it's like almost detached retinal retinal yeah. bright, you know? And I'm thinking, what the hell's the deal with that guy? He, he, it, it just didn't... Ryan, it didn't seem right that he was there in that position for that long watching everything that's going on. It just didn't right. seem right to me. So I went up to him, and I asked him, and I figured somebody else had already talked to him. And I give him my card, and I said, hey, you know, what'd you see? And he goes, I didn't see nothing. And I said, okay. I said, if you hear anything, give me a call. If I can do anything for you, give me a call because I want to solve this. And that was it. But I had that. It was, it, it, it was just a feeling. And it mm. was based on his position, his age, his interest level compared to everybody else. It was mm. just something different about it. Yeah. So that was a Sunday. Monday morning, I go to the parole office um, and people mistake parole and probation. In California, state parole means you went to state prison for a major league crime and you were paroled out and then you have a parole agent assigned to you and they keep track of you. Probation was a county function out there where you're on probation for a crime that is either reduced from a felony or doesn't rise to getting a year in custody or more than a year in custody in state prison. So probation, I didn't deal with them as much because our guys were always major players. Mm. Not that the probation guys don't play major players, <laughs> they do. But uh, anyway, so I go to the parole office and I see this friend of mine, Wayne Davison, and he kind of he looks like Barack Obama. And he's just, just the greatest guy in the world. He's hysterical. Um, I did some tile work for his parents when they moved into the neighborhood where I had my condo. Um, anyway, Wayne was just hilarious. And so I go in there, hey, what's going on? Because I would always use the parole guys to help me on these things because they yeah. knew who was who in the right. zoo. You know, they, they had the, the whole re you know, thing going on. So I went in there and I said, hey, I, said, I saw this guy out uh, at this murder yesterday. Um, any idea who's, who's got his case? And he looks at the name and he goes, well, that's mine. And I go, you're kidding. He goes, no. He says, he's going to be in on Thursday to you know, pee in a bottle, you know, checking him for drugs. Mm -hmm. And I go, what time? He tells me. And I said, okay, I'll be back. So I come back on Thursday. This guy comes in. I'm not going to use his name because it's not important. You know, <laughs> let's call him Ted Nugent, okay. you know, for the sake of a laugh. So Ted Nugent comes in, pees in the bottle. It's not the real Ted Nugent, the guitar player, <laughs> but it's just we'll use that name because it's handy. So anyway, Ted comes in, and, and I'm sitting there in, in Wayne's office, and this Ted comes in and he looks at me like, oh, what are you doing here? And so mm -hmm. I said, hey, look, I, I know the other day on Sunday when I talked to you, you couldn't probably say anything because of the neighborhood and everything like that. Can you tell me what happened out there? And he goes, um, nah, I, uh, I don't want to talk to you. <laughs> and that just told me he already knew right. what was going on. And I said, well, I said, I get it. You know, here's another one of my cards. If, if you ever have a change of heart or you need something, call me. Okay. And then he leaves. I knew he was going to get popped by some patrol street monster for holding dope within the next two weeks. Right. Which, of course, is what happened. You know, some street monster like you saw him <laughs> out in the corner and, you know, shook him down. And he's, you know, he's holding some meth. So, you know, they lock him up. And I 
get a call. He wants to talk to me. I go down there. Go figure. Yeah, go figure. What are yeah. the odds? And that's how we solved them. You know, he gave me a tape statement of everything, you know, locked it on down. So then that generated a search warrant. And then we were able to arrest the guy, you know, who did it. And, and that was really how, you know, I mean, I didn't really need DNA on that one. I didn't need a camera in the sky or anything like that. It was right. just... You know, you work with what you've got. Yeah. And if you got a video, it's even better. Right. Um, if you don't have a video, it's, you know, you have to maybe do something, you know, different. But I can't think of hardly any of those whodunits that I went to. And I'd look at it and I'd go, I don't have anything to work with here. I'll never right. solve this. And uh, mysteriously, somebody watching from above, there's right. only one guy above as far as I'm concerned, he would just kind of deal out these yeah. little tips and yeah. these little things. Breadcrumbs. Yeah, and then all of a sudden these things would come together. And yeah. so I thank him for that. Well, uh, so many that, other things too. That was a, another comedian's bit. He said one time about <clears throat> like the first 48. He goes, I had no idea how many murders happened like right in front of everybody. Like you always picture like this dark seedy alley and somewhere and he goes, people were like, where, where did it happen? He goes, right there. And like he points with his toe right in front of him. And he's like, oh, okay, did you see it? Yeah, I saw the whole thing. And it's like, it, it probably happens more often than you would think because in general, that the amount of people there are in the U.S. and the amount of murders that there are is actually pretty impressive. Like there's not as many, oh, there's not that many. As, the, as you would think there should be this many people living in close proximity to each other. Maybe more so now than before, but I'm just saying like, it is kind of impressive that it's like, oh, it happened right, like right there. And it's like, yeah, right, right there. Like right in front of all these people in broad daylight. Yeah, right there. Well, that's what most of the murderers were, you know. And, you, and, you know, you sit across the table and you talk to them, you know, many of them over the years. And, and I remember they sent me to a, a one-week uh, interview and interrogation class. And it was a good class put on by a good instructor. But he had his philosophy on how the interview should be done. And I tried his style once or twice and of course the guy immediately asked for a lawyer and I thought well this is this is I mean the, the content is good but the approach is bad so right. I just decided to go back to being myself and I had the I had the luxury I, I got to work a couple of task force with the FBI um, we had a serial killer task force that I was on for six months uh, Kevin and I together my partner that got shot six times and survived uh, pretty cool guy um, but anyway we got assigned to this task force for six months and we'd come to the police station every two weeks to get our check. But other than that, we were working at the offsite where they had the task force yeah. going. And so I worked with a lot of good agents. Is that and, when you did a lot of the traveling? Um, no, actually, yeah. I didn't do much traveling on that. Oh, Most no. of my traveling okay. was just working the murders. Oh, wow. You know, it, okay. um, you know, something would come up and then I would go. Um, and I'll, if, I can tell you a quickie about that and how I got in trouble on one of those. But anyway, so <laughs> I worked with a, bu a bunch of these FBI guys. And I, I picked up, there was one in particular, this guy, Jeff Reinick. Uh, he wrote a book. Um, it's called In the Name of the Children. It's a great read. Uh, the guy's name is Jeff Reinick, R-I-N-E-K. If you're into that stuff, I would recommend the book. It's really good. But he had a, a really good delivery on doing interviews with people that I had never thought of. And what he would do is he would go way back before I would do on my interview. And when he'd sit down with somebody, he would start asking them about their mom and dad, sisters and brothers, where they grew up, where they went to school, favorite subject, favorite teacher, why, um, any tragedies happened in, in your childhood, um, how was your parents getting along, who was most influential with you when you were growing up, your mom or your dad, did you have any outside influences, things like that, did you ever get in sports? He, what he was doing is he was getting these people to, to start giving them a, like a like a forensic biology. Yeah, like a family bio, history. Yeah, yeah a, like a just biography kind of, of their life. Right. And so it helped him later on when he was talking to these guys more and more.
because what he could do then is he could pluck things from the past mm. as a common thread they yeah, would have. Yeah, how would mom feel about that? How and would, I yeah. stole that procedure from him <laughs> with you know open eyes in front of the floodlights. Yeah. And I used that, and that helped me get more confessions. I, there was one guy, he'd killed his wife. I got it on audio. He's, she's talking on the phone as, as she's running across the street, and you can hear him coming up behind her. You can hear the shotgun blasts as he shoots her, and she falls to her neighbor's house across the street as she's on the, you know, the, the cordless. And um, I end up talking to this guy within four hours of him doing the killing. We did a, a four-hour and 45-minute interview. And about 25 minutes, of it, 25 minutes of it had to do with the killing. The rest of the time, we were talking about quads, <clears throat> raising our sons, duck hunting, <laughs> chicks, being married, I, just the whole you know spectrum. Right. What kind of beer do you like? All this kind of stuff. And what happened is, is because we spent so much, and this guy was a big guy, I mean, much bigger right. than me, and he looked like a Viking. He was this big Nordic-looking yeah. dude with the blonde hair. I mean, he, you know, he looked like he could kick my ass from, you know, from here to, you know, yeah. down to uh, <laughs> Northport at least. <laughs> and um, anyway, we, we finished the interview, and then later on they tried to get uh, a suppression on the confession in the interview because of uh, NGI, not guilty by reason of insanity. But because the length of the interview and the conversation, and they had it run mm -hmm. by the shrinks, the shrinks said, show he's not crazy. Yeah. And, if, and, if he, and if I wouldn't have had the, the ability to suck his butt, for lack of a better term, for that amount of time and have the patience to talk to him that long, we would have run a risk of losing all of that. Yeah. And so that was one of the things that I learned from the FBI that... I, I should say I learned from Jeff Reinick and a few other good agents over there, Ted Kasturis, Terry Scott, um, you know, guys like that, George Pirro, um, all good guys that really benefited, you know, the detective stuff. And so when you sit across the table from these killers, they end up being humanized and you see them as, you know, okay, I saw this guy as killing his wife four hours earlier, but I kind of liked him. Yeah. And I saw that on many of these guys that did something stupid emotionally spur of the moment with a firearm that they regret for the rest of their life. Right. There were very few true TV quality evil people, you know, mm. Hannibal Lecter-ish. I, I remember one most violent murder scene that I ever went to, it was done with a uh, butcher knife and a claw hammer. Guy uh, killed a woman and disabled her husband. And um, he was truly evil. I mean, right. you'd look in his eyes and it was like, there's just nothing there's, there. you'd like a look yeah. right through him, you know, they were like, Dead. You know, yeah, they dead, were dead eyes. eyes. Yeah. yeah, they really were. Um, but thankfully, there weren't too many of those. Most of the guys, when you'd get in there and you'd yeah. start talking to them, they heated the moment. Right? Yeah, heated the moment. And if and if you could ever, you know, if you could somehow weave it into your interview or interrogation, if it you know got to that point, that yeah, I could see that. I probably would have done the same thing. Right. Catchphrases like that seemed to work over and over, and most of the time they were pretty sincere. Well, who was that or that show, that Mindhunter show? Have you watched that? Watch that. He, he, that's exactly what he's learning is that, oh, if I make it like the, the one where the guy killed the little girl, like the, or she was like 14 or whatever. Yeah. She was a young girl, and he literally was like, she doesn't look 14. You know, like he, yeah, he had to be a little, he had to bring himself down to that level of grossness, but relatability, like trying to relate. And that's the only way you're going to gonna the, get yeah. anything out of them. And right. then, of course, you know, you always run the risk, and I, I faced it in court many times where they, you know, you'd be on the witness stand, and, you, you know, they'd do direct, and then, you know, you got the jury sitting there, and then the defense would, you know, come on cross, and then, the, you know, one of the first things they would say out of your mouth, well, you know, we... 
we listened to this um, interview that you did and these excerpts and everything like that. The jury has a transcript. Um, you were just trying to soften up my client, weren't you? And I'd look right back in their face and go, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Because I can't get to the truth if I can't talk to them. Right. And, you know, where do they got to go from there? And, and yeah, because so there's nothing illegal about you, that. It's not like you violated illegal. anybody's rights by exactly. talking to the guy. Yeah. And so you have to, you know, they, they throw obstacles for the protection of the innocent into the procedure. I get that and I agree with that. You also have to learn how to navigate your way through those. And the thing is, is the, the bottom line, you can't get the truth out of somebody if you don't talk to them. I remember one guy that our patrol guys arrested, he shot his sister, her boyfriend, and her son when they came over to his residence. They were staying there part-time. The patrol guy did this? Uh, a, no, a patrol guy picked this guy up. Oh, oh, I was guy's like, sitting in a recliner. He's a semi, um, semi-invalid. He's got some health issues going on. And, and he was being used as a punching bag by his sister's boyfriend and his nephew. His sister wasn't doing it too much, but he was letting them stay there mm. because that's what he did. He was a nice guy, but then they started abusing him. And so finally he had had enough of this. So he had a 38 revolver, if I recall correctly, tucked in behind his pillow in his recliner where he would sit because he couldn't, he wasn't very mobile. And when they started laying the Rocky Balboa on him that day, he pulled out the gun, he shot all three of them. And of course they all survived, handgun wound, 80% survival wound, unless it gets you in the noggin. And so anyway, they take him to, to two different hospitals, but all separated, you know. So I get out there and, you know, tour the crime scene and everything like that. This guy's down in, in you know, in jail and um, he doesn't want to talk to us. And so I thought, well, you know, I probably ought to talk to these people. So the next day I go to the, both hospitals. I don't tell any of the three that I'm going in to talk to them. And I get three statements from all three of them. Yeah. Ryan, completely different statements. Didn't even seem like the crime occurred in the same county. Oh my I mean, they, they were so, it's not a perception difference from right. a different uh, perspective. It, it it was, is, it's completely different. So right. every, either, either two are lying or all three. Right. And so then I'm thinking, this has got some, some overtones of, of self-defense on it. Yeah. So I go back down to the jail. I go talk to this guy. Luckily, by this time, he he's willing to talk to me. And I get a statement from him, and it's all self-defense. So I go to the DA's office, and I tell the prosecutor, we got to get this guy out of jail because this is self-defense all the way. You don't even have wow. a case here because, you, I, I'm, you know, I recorded my interviews. They're going to yeah. be discovered. You, you don't have anything. Hmm. And so, anyway, you, you know, you have to be willing to step over that line that some guys maybe don't want to step over and do the thing for the guy that needs it to be done. Right. And there were, I remember there were a couple of times I testified on behalf of defendants at their sentencing. Oh, wow. When the probation department would call me. They, when a guy was convicted on a, on a violent felony, his information would go to the county probation department and they would prepare a bio on the guy. And then they would review the case. And, and there was a couple of times they called me. Uh, I remember Doug Juan was one of the guys, the probation officer that called me. And he said, I read your interview with this guy. Um, I'm going to subpoena you to testify on his behalf at the sentencing. Hmm. And I said, well, you do what you got to do. Yeah, you know, it's, I mean, not really it's a subpoena. It's not yeah, like I get to choose. Yeah, like, no, go, don't send me that can't subpoena. can't go fishing that day. Yeah, exactly. And it, you know, and it didn't you know, bode well with the DA's office. They didn't like that too often. But it's like, hey, I'm stuck. And you put right. me under the oath. I'm going to tell like it is. I remember one guy in particular, they, you know, they asked me, well, would you have a problem living next door to, to David? And I said, no, I think he'd probably be a pretty fine neighbor. And, um, and that, that one ended up, I mean, I could tell detective stories all day. I don't know how long you want to go on all this crap. But anyway, all these things weave together. So many of these cases, two murders would weave together. They'd be separated by two years. Oh, wow. And it was just kind of crazy how all that stuff worked. But, so uh, I was, it's 
I was listening to a podcast earlier, um, actually on my way here, and it was uh, it was a cop that was in uh, involved in that San Bernardino uh, in 2015, the oh, terrorist yeah. thing, yeah. and he he was one of the cops that shot, like, got in the shootout with them at the end of it, and uh, he actually got shot. He got the Medal of Valor or whatever it yeah. was from the president and everything, but uh, he was talking, and it's it's funny you say this about how some people don't want to cross. I think especially a lot of like newer new 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 hires like new cops new law enforcement um i think it's that they they don't even know how because he was saying he goes um you know i see a lot of these new guys come in and they're so glued to that phone like they've gotten so used to they're they're young they're young guys and there's nothing wrong with that but the problem is they've gotten so involved in whatever you want to call it social media or text or whatever they don't they can't even like have a normal conversation with you because they're so, you know what I mean? They're, they're so used to just being on a screen and I've seen it happen where the other day, I mean, this was a while ago, this was months ago, but I went to a call and uh, being canine, I don't go to like a lot of like just domestic stuff necessarily, but like I try to back people. If I'm nearby, I'll, I'll back yeah. you up. I don't care what it is, you know? And then honestly, a lot of, you know, batteries or disturbances, those usually will turn into a canine call if someone runs out the back door or whatever. You know what I mean? So, like, it's, you know, I try to go for something that's going to maybe work in my favor. But I have no problem backing anybody up on anything. But uh, I showed up, and they were, like, they were already finishing up. There was, like, three deputies there. And uh, they were kind of already outside the house, and they were wrapping up or whatever. And I walked up, and I'm like, hey. And I didn't know any of them. Didn't recognize any of them. They're all new faces. I walk up, and I'm like, hey, guys, how's it going? They're like, good. And they literally, like, that was the extent of our conversation. They were like, good. And they all got back in their car. And I mean, I, I had showered that day, so I know it wasn't my smell. But, like, they drove away, and I was like, oh, that was weird. Like, maybe maybe they didn't, you know, maybe they had something. I look, there are no other calls they're going to, nothing like that. And, like, literally when I leave, I see each of them, like, parked kind of, like, somewhere nearby, not together. And I was just kind of like... Oh, that's weird. And so I asked someone about it, like that I did know on that squad. I was like, hey, what's up with these guys? Like, I didn't, like, they didn't, because I'm sure you guys did it too. After a call, you bullshit for a few minutes oh, afterwards. Gosh, like, I mean, yeah. sometimes longer, but like, I had, not to get too sidetracked, but I had one a, not too long ago, and I think I told it a couple podcasts ago, where this guy wanted me to, we went to this house for a disturbance, basically. No crime, just, hey, you guys, you know ignore each other for the rest of the night, sleep on different sides of the house, that sort of thing. You know what I mean? They were just arguing. It was amidst COVID, you know, tensions were high, whatever. Just, hey, go leave each other alone. Well, I'm out there shooting the shit down the road from the residence, shooting the shit with this other deputy. And the dude walks up and he's like, what are you guys doing? I'm like, nothing. Is everything okay, sir? And he's like, well, I want you guys to leave. Which, first off, uh, that seems a little suspicious. Yeah, like you were just in a domestic, like you do, I just came to a, the cops just came to a call at your house because you were in an argument with your wife and now you want the cops to like, like we had already left. Like you weren't in trouble. She wasn't in trouble. Nothing happened. And now you just want us to leave. That to me is like red flag number one. Like, why do you want me to leave? Are you going to yeah. do something? And I, and I was like, well, we'll be on our way here in a moment, sir. Like, you know, completely cordial, completely polite. Well, I want you to, like, why are you guys still here? And I go, well, we're just discussing something. And he's like, well, you're causing a disturbance. I mean, it's like 11 o'clock at night. 
in a residential neighborhood, like one of those like older neighborhoods, there wasn't a single light on in the houses anywhere around. I go, who are we disturbing, sir? Because we weren't even in front of his house. We were a couple houses down, yeah. you know, because <clears throat> I was like the first one there. I practice parking. Yeah, I was gonna say I like to practice officer safety and (laughs) not park right in front of the house. But anyways, and I was like, "Who are we disturbing?" He goes, "My neighbors." And I go, "I don't." I go, "We haven't gotten any." Yeah, let them come out and tell us. Yeah, I said, "I go, or we'll get a call of another disturbance," and we haven't gotten that. And like, he he was adamant. I mean, it ended up going to where he ended up calling the supervisor in the long run and all this stuff. And like, I you know I spoke with the supervisor afterwards because we'd already left, but like he had called to complain. And I call I called the uh, I called the supervisor because the deputy that I was talking to was newer and he was worried he was gonna get in trouble and stuff. And I called him and I said, "Hey man, this guy because being a good supervisor, he called me first rather than called the guy first to find out what was going on. Right. He just got a dispatch screen saying, "Hey, this guy wants to lodge a complaint." So he called me. What happened? I told him. I said, "Hey man, this guy was being a jerk." Um, from the moment we got there and like we were talking down the road, I go, we weren't, we weren't on his property. We weren't, we were in the roadway and like all this stuff. We were very polite, blah, blah, blah. He's like, okay. So he calls the guy and then he calls me back and he goes, well, there's 15 minutes. I'll never get back. You know? And he goes, the, he goes, yeah, he, he goes, I explained to him the same thing I was just saying. Like sometimes people want us to leave so that like sometimes deputies will stick around to make sure it doesn't continue to escalate. Yeah, you, you know what I mean? Yes, yeah, exactly. So, um, he explained that to him and he goes, the the funniest part though, is he said, he goes, you guys were so polite and so cordial and very professional the whole time. And I'm like, this is what I mean. Like people just want to call and complain. But that being said, I think, well, I'm a little bit, I'm not old, but I'm a little bit older than some of these new guys that are coming in. And I did the jail first. I think that verbal, I hate the term verbal judo. I think it's a little yeah. silly, but to an extent, you have to be able to talk to people. And like, that's with that guy, that Nick Kahula or whatever he was that was at San Bernardino. He said like, cause the guy asked me, he's like, what, what would you wish you could change if you could change something about these new recruits? And he goes, I wish I could make them understand like how to talk to people better, like how to have like better social interactions with people. And very similar to what you're saying is like, sometimes you have, it can be anything. Hey man, uh, who's your team? Like, what team do you watch? You know what I mean? It could be football. It could be, like you said, raising a kid. Hey, I know you have a son. Like, how's that going? You know, anything. It could be anything. But, like, I think some of these kids, like those three that I saw in there, I asked him, he goes, man, they don't talk. Like, he goes, he he was an older guy on that, you know, shift. And he goes, yeah, these new kids don't know how to talk. They won't even, like, 56 with you and talk with you. Like, they won't even meet up with you and shoot the shit because – They've got their phone or their computer. They don't, they don't need to. And it's like, man, I, I mean, we had the, we've had the computers the whole time I've been there. The cell phones have obviously, like when I first came out, it was Nextels. Like, yeah, you know, yeah, people Nextels had the Nextels, yeah. but it was like, that was all you just met up with someone to even like between calls, you met up with someone, you know, and that yeah. was it. All right, guys, that's the end of part one. Like I said, did have some technical issues. That's why we weren't able to get the last 30 minutes or so of that podcast that we had done. But don't worry, we've got part two coming out soon. So thank you for listening to Let's See What Happens.